0: couple things. Uh, number one, did anybody else take communion with a lot of anticipation to see if there that little piece of bread was in your cup or not? I'm like, oh man, I hope I'm not as bad as Alan. I, I had a bread, so. <laughs> I, yeah, I feel like I win. Okay, good. Uh Number two, I, I wanna, I, I don't know which camera's on, but welcome to uh, our live stream audience. We're actually back live streaming again today. Yay. That is super awesome. It, that's been a long, like it was a whole, it was five or six weeks or something, It's just down. So it's, it's working, it's up, it's running, hopefully. So that is, uh, that's really good. Um, I, I have not been to the holy land, but thankfully I am the one who gets up to speak last. So whatever Alan says, I get the last word. Uh, a few months ago, I was working on the um, messages for the rest of the year and kind of planning out that series. And so I was, I was doing some reading and research, just looking at things. What, what do I need to talk about? What, what do I need to share? And I remember there, there was, for some reason, I was reading the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. So there's a story of Jesus, um, he's, he's out on a hill, uh, by the Sea of Galilee, and all of these people have come to listen. Five thousand men, it says, plus women and children, a bunch of people there, and um, Jesus says, "Like it's late." Um, when these people need something to eat, and all they have is five loaves of bread and a couple fish, and I'm I'm reading this story, and it and it says that Jesus took the loaves and the fish, and he gave thanks, and after he had, had given thanks, he broke the bread and he gave it to his disciples. And then it says that every person there, 5,000 men plus women and children, maybe 10 more thousand people, it said everyone ate all that they wanted. That's pretty crazy, right? I think, like Alan said, like it's Thanksgiving for everybody because you you eat at Thanksgiving. Calories don't count on Thanksgiving. And so you eat all that you want and they were hungry. They'd been there for like, it's a big deal. They ate as much as they wanted. And, and I really got to thinking, and, and maybe this is wrong of me, but I really got to thinking, what did Jesus say when he gave thanks? Wouldn't you like to know that? I, I would like to know what it is that Jesus said when he took five loaves of bread and a few fish, and then he gave thanks and fed thousands and thousands of people. I want to know that so that I can pray that prayer every single day. God, I got five bucks, but I'm going to pray this prayer, and I'm going to have thousands of dollars. God, I don't have much to eat. I'm going to pray this prayer that Jesus prayed. I'm going to have more than I need. I'm going to be able to feed the whole block. God, my car's not running very well, but if I pray this prayer, and I, I think that's probably why the prayer isn't included. It's probably why it just says, he gave thanks and he broke the bread and he shared it and everybody had. Because if we knew what that prayer was, we'd try to employ it in every single situation. Because we do that, right? You, you may have been around church people, and they go, well, uh, in Israel, when they were going into the promised land, they went to Jericho first. And they marched around the city of Jericho, remember seven days, and then seven times on the seventh day, and then the walls fell out. They got they got their miracle. And so what do we church people do? We're like, well, we need this thing. I'm gonna go walk around this new car in the in the lot seven times, and then God's gonna give me that that car. Like we try to employ those things that God used a specific place and a specific time for a specific reason, and we go, well, if I just do that over here, I'll get the same result. And so if we knew what Jesus prayed, we'd use it, and then we'd expect it to to function in our lives in just the same way. But that story and thinking about that, that prayer got me to thinking, like, how did Jesus thank God? Over and over, it says Jesus gave, he gave thanks and then whatever, he gave thanks and he broke the bread. He gave thanks and he took the wine. Like over and over we see that, but what did Jesus actually say when he thanked God? What did he say when he gave thanks? Now I sometimes struggle with how to be thankful just as much as what I'm to be thankful for. And I don't know if anybody else has that problem, but that's just part of the quirkiness of me, I guess. That whole thankful thing with God, like I forget things all the time and I don't remember stuff that he's given and done. And so I just, I feel like I'm not really good at being thankful. And so I, I, went, on a little, I went on a little treasure hunt in, in scripture and I found three times in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, three times the beginning of the New Testament where Jesus said the phrase, I thank you. And I just kind of did a search and I found this. Three times, one of those times, Jesus was speaking kind of in front of his disciples. He was with his disciples, a very specific thing going on. And and he prays this prayer and he says, I thank you, God. Another time, he's speaking uh, with some grieving friends. And it's a really tense situation. A loved one had had died and and Jesus starts this prayer. I thank you, Father. And, And in the last... Situation, which is actually going to be the first one that we cover today, Jesus is actually telling a story. It's called a parable in the Bible. It's a story with a point. And um, we're going we're to look at that where Jesus says, I thank you. And he's actually kind of assigning that to one of the characters in the story that he's telling. So we're gonna look over the next several weeks, uh, the rest of this month, we're gonna look at those three times that Jesus says, I thank you. We're gonna look at what was going on before he said it, what happened after he said it, like why he said it, what was going on, and then is there anything that we can learn and apply to our own lives when it comes to this idea of of being thankful? Because it's Thanksgiving, it's November, and we gotta talk about that. Um, so today we'll look at the time where Jesus was telling a, a, a parable, a story with a point and it's in Luke chapter 18 and it begins in verse nine. Here's what he says. Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And I got to tell you a story. Um, in early October, we put up some banners out out front by the, by the road at the corners of the property. Uh, they were advertising our Halloween party and trunk or treat and kind of all the things that were going to be going on uh, a few weeks ago, um, to, to celebrate that time of year. And if you come to church here, like you've heard my, you've heard my story and my spiel, I, I, it just bothers me when Christian people change the name of things to try and pretend like they're not celebrating. Like like everybody knows you're celebrating Halloween when you have a harvest festival or fall festival or Neawalla or whatever. Everybody knows you're celebrating. Calling it something else doesn't change what you're doing. It it doesn't matter, it's still the same. And so we just are like, hey, we're having a Halloween party. Um, And and so uh, we had put these banners up and it was right about the time that, that we had finished, like we'd painted the front of the building and we got the upper part of the auditorium um, painted. And so one day I go out to check the mail and I, uh, I go out there and, and it's a long walk out to the mailbox. So I usually check the mail, I get, in the, I get in the truck and I'm like going home or I'm coming in and I drive by the mailbox and, and check it. So I get there and I open the thing and there's no letters. But there's a little slip of paper in there. that's weird. And I picked it up and it was written in pink. I'd only assume that a a woman wrote it. I don't know why, but that's just what I thought when I read it. Uh, and in this note, it said something about how any church that celebrates Halloween and paints its paints its building black, uh, must not be much of a church and God surely wouldn't approve of what we're doing here. Uh, And so I I read it and I went, (laughs) crumpled it up and threw it away. Uh, And and that was it. Uh, I I just want to tell you, just in case you're wondering, just in case you're concerned, uh, the color of the paint on the outside of the building is thunder gray. Thank you. It is not black (laughs) because clearly black is the devil. So I don't know, that's just like apparently, my goodness, I didn't know that all of Christian faith hung on if you use the word Halloween and you like the color black. Apparently that's bad, it's evil, and you shouldn't do it. Anyway, I, I just wanna tell you just to clear that up that God is way more concerned with our posture before him, like the posture of the people who call themselves followers of God than he is with the presentation of our building, or or really with the presentation of of ourselves. You don't have to dress up and and wear, like like clearly, you don't have to dress up and wear a suit and tie to to come to church and and be accepted by God. You don't have to go to a church that has a big steeple. By the way, if we start calling that radio antenna we have on top of the building a steeple, we win. Like like we could, we could really paint our church building black, but we've got the tallest steeple. So we're the best church apparently. Anyway, uh, I, God is more concerned about our posture than our presentation. And, and, and Jesus was talking in this story right off the bat in that first verse. Like he's talking in the story to mailbox note people. And to people who trust in themselves, it says, and treat others with contempt. I mean, those people who look at others and go, because of the way they look or the things that they've done or what they're saying, like, I'm better than them. And we all know people like this. We all know people like this in, in our lives. And, and I think most of the time they're really well-meaning, like they're, they're really trying to help, even though what ends up happening is, is it hurts right? The things that they say and and do, it hurts. It doesn't really help. There's a lot of people that think their way is the right way because it's their way. You have to do it my way because my way is the right way. And we go, why is your way the right way? Because it's my way. Like they don't have an explanation for that. And I, and I gotta tell you, it's been a really hard lesson for me. Like I grew up in in church. My father was a, a, a minister. My whole life growing up, he was a pastor. I grew up in, in church. Um, the the people that I grew up in church with would not approve of the of the way that I dress at church. So it's that that I mean, they were very loving people, and kind people. Um, but you dressed up when you went to church, and that was kind of how how they how they functioned. So this has been a hard lesson. Um, for me, over the years, and something that I continue to to struggle with, because if, if I'm honest with you, like I cringe when church people cuss. I just, I personally, I just don't like it. I don't think it's necessary. I don't think we need to do it. I don't do it myself. I, I just, I just, I just don't like it. And I cannot like it. Like that's okay. I'm giving myself permission to not like that. I just don't like it. It makes me uncomfortable. And by the way, I'm sometimes embarrassed by the way people who claim to be Christians or followers of Jesus dress. I've seen social media things where somebody talks about God and about following Jesus and they write John 3.16 on their profile thing. And then as you look through some of the pictures, you go, my goodness, I would have never guessed that that was Like if you would have told me your name was Trixie and you worked at Jezebel's, I'm like, yes, absolutely. That fits. This does not fit. These two things don't go together. And it's just weird to me. And I realize that I'm standing up here telling you that as a preacher wearing shorts on Sunday morning at at church. Um, And a preacher, if you come here to church, you know I sometimes say inappropriate things just comes out. I talk for a living. Sometimes those things just slip out, and my mother-in-law is embarrassed, and I'm sorry about that, but that's just the way it goes. The point that I'm trying to make here is that we all have a line. Every one of us have a line, and the line is always just a little bit past wherever we are. When we go, well, I'm okay because this is where I'm in, and this is what I'm doing, and this is what I'm comfortable with, But you are not okay. And I'm going to look at you with contempt because you've crossed my whatever imaginary line. And we think because we're comfortable with the things that we do, that God must be comfortable with the things we do. And if we're uncomfortable with the things somebody else does, God must be uncomfortable with the things that somebody else is doing. Right off the bat, though, Jesus is setting the story. And I think, he, I think he makes this statement for a really important purpose. I think he wants to divide the people who are listening to him. He wants them to understand that there is a group of people who trust their own righteousness. And there is a group of people who are, who are looked upon with contempt. Two groups of people. And he wants them to be thinking about that right off the bat, because what are we going to do? We're going to pick sides, right? Cause that's what we do as people. When there's an opportunity to pick sides, we're going to pick sides. It is NFL football season. And so if you're not a Cowboys fan too bad, like that's the line. The Cowboys are God's team. That's the way it is. That's why their stadium had a hole in the roof. So God could watch. Okay. Thank you, you are proving my point. <laughs> we are always gonna pick sides. We're always gonna say, this is the right one and this is the wrong one. And Jesus was setting the stage for that right off the, right off the, the bat. We all have groups of people that we accept and groups of people that we have contempt for. They fall into that category. People were sure that we're better than. And, and we've always got good reasons why we're on the right side, right? Let's go on to the next verse. Jesus like defines this a little bit more. And he says, okay, there's the self-righteous person, the righteous person, and there's the one that's being treated with contempt. And now he says, there are two men. And so immediately you're like, okay, well, one of them is in one of those groups and one of them is in the other. The two men who went up to the temple to pray, that was the house of God. That was supposed to be the place where God's presence existed all the time. They went up into the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, if you were a Jewish person listening to what Jesus was saying that that day, you immediately knew which of these people belonged in which, which category. The Pharisees were a group of religious leaders uh, they were the most spiritual and most pious people on the planet. They would surely be among those who were held in contempt by the self righteous tax collector. Because every single Jewish person hated tax collectors. Every one of them, nobody liked them because tax collectors were sellouts to Rome. Rome occupied Israel at this time, and um, the Israelites, the Jewish people, hated that. Jewish men, tax collectors were Jewish men who extorted money from their countrymen at armed guard, because they had Romans with them doing this. They extorted money from their countrymen to line their own pockets in the pockets of their Roman counterparts. Tax collectors were hated by all Jews, except maybe, other tax collectors and their family members, because a tax collector could provide very well for themselves and for their family. Tax collectors had power within the Roman government, they had high positions, and they were very prosperous people because they cheated all of their countrymen, and they were hated by the Jews. The Pharisees, on the other hand, Like these people were the closest to God. It was from this group of people that the high priest was picked, the guy who was number one on God's list. Like he was closest to God that you could could get. He came from the Pharisees. If you had a question about God, you went to a Pharisee. These guys were the top of the list. They were treated like royalty by all the Jewish people. These were men of power within the Jewish nation. They held the highest positions and they were very, very prosperous. But unlike the tax collectors, they were honored by most Jews. Everyone believed that the Pharisee was going to be the hero in Jesus' story. Verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed like this, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a 10th of all that I get. Now by this time in, in, in history, God had not been present in the temple for hundreds of years. Though the people kept making sacrifices, they would keep the feast. they would do all the things that they were supposed to do, all the things that were written down to them in the law of Moses, they did. But at least for 400 years, there is no record of any mention of a prophet among the people. God's presence has not been seen or, or felt in the temple for hundreds of years. On a national scale, God had just been silent. They had story upon story of the things that God did in the Old Testament, the Jewish scriptures. But when it came to that day, they were going through the motions in, in the temple. Like God was gone from their worship. And it goes way back to the exile of Israel from um, from their homeland, the promised land, out to Babylon. And there's this whole thing with Ezekiel, and he he sees the presence of God, like the chariot of God in a vision, leaving the temple. God said, I can't put up with this anymore, the corruption and the evil that's going on. And so God left his temple. What the Pharisee was doing when he prayed seems an awful lot like the practices of the priests in the idols, the temples of false gods in other nations around Israel. Like, in order to get the attention of God. If you, if you follow, or you worship the false God, an an image carved out of wood or, or stone or something, if you needed to get the attention of your God, you had to do something big. Your worship had to be great. You had to to show or prove your love for this God in order to get them to respond to you or do what you wanted. And so you had to be better than every other person that was bringing a sacrifice. Because if you weren't, then that, that God might not answer your prayer, might not respond to you, might not do what you wanted. And so when you came to that God to worship, you would have to recount all the things that you had done that that God might appreciate. And if you got it all right, then maybe you would be the best, and maybe that God would respond to you. And so they would do all kinds of things to try to get the attention of that God. If if prayers didn't work, uh, and if putting other people down and saying, I'm better than all these other people. That didn't work. Well, then they had to up the ante. And so they would bring gifts and these big elaborate things. And eventually, like scripture tells us, people would cut themselves to try and get the attention. They would tattoo the images of their gods onto their bodies to try and prove their, their love for that particular God and try to get their attention. And, and it even led to, because they kept having to up the ante, it even led to sacrificing their own children on that God's altar to try and get that God to respond to them. But God isn't manipulated by our presentation. He's motivated by our posture, how we come to him not by all the things that we do and not by the way that we dress not by the way our hair is done and, and it doesn't matter like we often think it's a, it's about well like fancy clothes or whatever but no like god doesn't care if you got if you got your hair all done up and fancy things or big hat or nice suit he doesn't care about any of that it's not about our presentation it's about our posture before him and so the jewish people having not heard from god in a very long time had resorted to these offensive Behaviors. They tried to manipulate God to act by their piety and good deeds. God, look at all the things that I've done. Look at how I'm serving. Look at how I'm giving. Look at what I'm doing for other people. And if that didn't work, they started going, God, you need to answer my prayer because I'm better than all of these other people. They're all sinners and terrible, but I do these good things for you. But none of that works with this God we kind of do the same thing today, don't we? I mean, it looks a little different, but we kind of do the same thing. Like when we pray to God or maybe when we're talking to a close friend, we we say things like, like, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Like, I'm I'm going to church. I'm giving what I can. I'm serving when I can. Like, I, I just, I'm busy, God. I've got a lot of things going on, but I'm doing what I can. Why aren't you blessing me? God, why aren't you doing the things that I that I need to be like, why aren't you responding to me? I'm doing everything that I think I can. Or then sometimes we look at others and we go, God, I'm clearly better than them. Why aren't you blessing me the way you appear to be blessing them? God is never motivated. When we elevate ourselves over other people, we try to make ourselves look better or when we try to manipulate him to act on our behalf. And when we come to God, like, like we wanna kinda of go, hey, look at all these things I'm doing, God, and, and so like I'm earning, I'm earning your approval, I'm earning your attention, like, do, like bless me because of all this, and God's like going, I don't, I don't care about that, really. Like, I, God loves us, he loves you because of who you are, not because of all the things that you do. And it's a really hard thing for us because in this world and in the relationships that we have in this world, it really is a lot about what have you done for me lately? And we get into this cycle where we feel like we have to earn all the love and attention from other people, but that's not how God works. And so we have this Pharisee who who shows up, who gets the best spot, who's trying to point out to God all the things that they have done. And then that's contrasted with the tax collector, the the obvious antagonist in, in the story. And here's what it says, verse 13. The tax collector though, so here's the Pharisee, here's the tax collector. He stands far off. He won't even lift up his head or his eyes to heaven, but he beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me a sinner. So while the Pharisee is looking for publicity, he wants as many people as possible to see him because he's like, if God's not going to respond to me, at least I'll get the attention, the admiration of the people who are around. The tax collector comes in and he's looking for obscurity. And so he finds a corner hoping nobody will notice him. And he keeps his head and his eyes down, and he pounds his chest in anguish, and he asks God to be merciful to him because he knows that he's a sinner. He knows he's blown it. And at this point in the story, every Jew listening to Jesus thought the Pharisee was the hero. I mean, look at all the good things he's done He fasted twice a week. Nobody had to fast twice a week. The Jewish people were asked to fast six times a year. Fasting just means avoiding food for a certain time period. They they were supposed to fast six times a year in, in accordance with certain feasts that they were to celebrate. The Pharisees, because they were better than everybody else, they fasted once a week as a normal course. It was like the same day, same time, everything. They fasted once a week. But this guy, he fasted two times which means he's twice as better as everybody else. Twice as better. That's good grammar for h people that twice as good as, as everybody, everybody else. The the people in that time period, they had this weird belief and it didn't always make sense. And it doesn't always make sense to us because again, we know the end of the story. And so we're looking back on this and going, why did they think that? Why did they, they do things that way. But the ancient people believed that if you had a lot, if you were in a high position, if you had money, if you had power, then God must be happy with you. And if you were poor, if you were lame, if you had a disability of some sort, then either you or somebody in your family, like your parents must have sinned, and that's why God allowed you to be born this way. Now, it didn't always work. Like it didn't always add up because the Pharisees, we find out in the story, are some of the worst people on the planet, not the best, and yet everybody thought they were the closest to God. But God is always more concerned with our posture before him than our presentation for him. And the Pharisee, he got dressed up on the outside, I think, to hide what was going on inside. The tax collector, he didn't fake honor to God. He didn't get all dressed up and go, look at me, God. He just came honestly before God. He just came and said, God, like, like, here I am. He just found a corner and said, here I am. And I think this is why Jesus spent so much time calling out the religious elite in scripture. Because they were masking their sinfulness in self-righteousness. And, and so he, what Jesus says next in the story, like shocks everybody, verse 14, like at this point, remember, they still think that the Pharisee is the hero and the tax collector is a zero. That's the way they're thinking. Here's what Jesus says. I tell you, the tax collector went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee because everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be Exalted. The people listening to what Jesus said are shocked. They're shocked that the Pharisee who did all these good things and went above and beyond as was twice as good as every other Pharisee wouldn't be justified before God. And the tax collector who did everything wrong and didn't look the part and didn't do any of the stuff that the Pharisee did, that he would be justified. They just couldn't make sense. It was a huge shock to the system of religion that they had built. And it's part of why, like statements like this are a big part of why the religious leaders and many of the people would soon call for Jesus' death. Because statements like this totally contradicted the religious mentality of the day. And we have that mentality today. We have this idea that if you're this kind of person, you're okay, and God can accept you. But if you believe this, or if you do that, or if you say that, well, then God's not happy with you and you're a sinner and you're terrible. We love to separate people and put them into two different camps. But but, but look at why Jesus says this. Everyone who exalts themselves will be humbled, and everybody who humbles themselves will be exalted. Years ago, I heard this definition of humility, and it's just kind of stuck with me. Humility is knowing the truth about who God is and who I am. Think about it, this concept of humility. And we hear hear that word a a lot, mostly in church, but you hear that word. It's it's about knowing the truth about who God is and who I am. Humility is recognizing that I don't have a claim against God. I cannot show up to heaven and and I I, I can't be like, hey God, I was the pastor at Real Life. Like, like all these people came, I got baptized hundreds of people, like you, like you need to let me in. Like I have no claim on God. There is nothing that I can do or say that would earn me heaven. There's nothing in my life that deserves His love. But humility also recognizes that God loves me even though I don't deserve it. It's about recognizing who God is, just like He loves you. He loves me just like he loves the woman who left the note or whoever it was who left the note in our mailbox. And he loves your obnoxious neighbor and the guy who cut you off on the way to work and your coworker who stabbed you in the back. He loves all of those people, all the people that we think are on the other side of the line. They've crossed the line. They've gone too far and they say things that I don't approve of. And they look the way I don't approve. God loves each of those people. Humility is about letting God write your story because he can do it better. Trusting that God's gonna work it out in the end. It is not my job to tell people, you're going to heaven, you're going to hell, you're doing it right, you're doing it wrong. That's not my job. The power of thanksgiving is in coming to God in humility. Coming to God in humility. God, I understand who you are, and I understand who I am. And I'm a whole lot more like the tax collector than the Pharisee. You see, the Pharisee didn't need God's mercy because he believed he deserved God's attention. Look at all the things he had done. The tax collector knew he needed God's mercy because he believed he didn't deserve God's attention. The Pharisee believed God should love him because all the things that he had done and the tax collector knew God shouldn't love him because of all the things that he had done. The Pharisee thought he was good enough. The tax collector knew he never could be. The Pharisee didn't need God. He wanted attention from other people. The tax collector didn't want attention. He just needed God. You can experience true thanksgiving in your life when you see yourself and God clearly. Like we can't earn God's love for us and we can't turn God's love from us. There is nothing you can do that will stop God from absolutely loving you no matter what. And so God doesn't bless you because you're better than anyone else blesses you because he loves you. He does things for you because he loves you, because he wants to, because, because he made you. Sometimes those blessings, they look a lot more like struggles than successes in our lives. But they are always for our growth, for others' good, and for God's glory. So this week, I just wanna challenge you. Try not to thank God for the things you think might make you look better in the eyes of others. Try to thank God for the things that allow others to see him better when they look at you. Let's pray. God, thanks for loving us no matter what. And, And thank you, God, for just being a God that looks past all of our junk and sees us as this beautiful, good creation that you have made us to be. God, forgive us for the times that, that we, have, we have stood on one side of this imaginary line that we have created and we've pointed fingers at other people and said, you aren't welcome, you aren't wanted, you aren't worthy simply because they had crossed some imaginary line that we would placed. God, help us to see everyone the way you see them with incredible love. God, help us when we look at ourselves, To not see ourselves as as just unworthy, even though we are, but help us to see ourselves the way you see us, as worthy of the sacrifice of your Son. As we see you more clearly and see ourselves more clearly. We don't try to elevate ourselves above, above others or, or try and manipulate you by by recounting all the things that we do. When we see ourselves clearly, God, then you're going to be able to work. and We're going to be able to experience the power of thanksgiving in our lives. And so we thank you for this day and this time to be together. In Jesus' name.